0: Hi, before we jump into today's episode, I want to tell you about an incredible event that we are running on the 22nd of January called Master Your Music. This event will be perfect for all independent artists and we have seven different masterclasses on different parts of music, including music production, mixing, live performance, songwriting, and a few others. It will be online so it can be joined from anyone, anywhere. And we have lined up loads of really amazing teachers that are really good at what they do and have gone to a lot of effort to make this a great resource. And like I mentioned, it's free. So do join us. There is a link in this episode. And I just want to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Audient, who have helped us make this happen. So hopefully, see you then. Uh, what did we
1: say? This is
0: MPW MPW, <laughs> MPW. The Podcast with <laughs> your host, <laughs> Zylo Aria, cool. a podcast about Our music, music production, production for the everyday, everyday music. musician, where we learn from experienced studio engineers and, and each, each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the MPW Podcast. I'm your host, Zylo Aria, and today we are chatting to the lovely Nina. So Nina is a multi-platinum mixing engineer from Amsterdam, and she has worked with loads of huge artists in hip hop over the last decade, and she was also the first female producer to win the Battle of the Beatmakers in Toronto, Canada. So, so great to have you with us, Nina. How are you
1: going? Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm doing great. Thanks, and you?
0: Yes, doing very good. Thank you. And we are recording this very early in uh, in 2022, so mm-hmm. we're just talking about uh, having some time off. So it sounds like you were able to do that and have a bit of a switch off uh, period.
1: Yeah, it's necessary. You know, after some time of of working nonstop for a couple of years, I've really learned to cherish these uh, these downtime moments where, you know, you get to actually have some quiet days. And what I also liked was that my phone was very quiet, like there's no requests, there's no emails, no um, messages. So I actually really enjoyed that <laughs> secretly. <laughs> But no, that no <laughs> secret about that.
0: I'm sure that is uh, one of the best things about this time is that you're off, and pretty much everyone else is off as well. And I sort of took that to the extreme of going camping where I had no reception for most of the time. So even better, <laughs> oh, it was it was so good, actually. and and I think, that uh, break from just the internet is really
1: um, necessary sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. We're just always plugged in, you know, so I think it's good to just um, have some time where you remember that you're a human being, you know. Exactly right. I love that.
0: (laughs) Remembering (laughs) you're a human being rather than a machine that's always on that we seem to be um, these days. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, today we are talking about mixing drums and there have been loads of people very interested about this topic. So very, very keen excited. To- yeah, to, to jump into the nitty gritty with you on that. But before that, we always ask our guest a bit about their journey, and they all seem to be so different. So I'd love to hear yours and how you got to where you are today in your music career.
1: Right. Well, at this moment, I'm 33 years old, and I started when I was around 15 started making my own music on my first desktop Windows computer. And, you know, I had a friend who uh, started out making beats in uh, in FL and um, Fruity Loops. And um, he was able to teach me the basics of it. And once I kind of like started working with it, I was just like, oh, this is amazing. And I started making my own terrible beats, of course, <laughs> started writing to them and uh, and recorded in um, what was then called Cool Edit Pro, which is uh, like uh, the first edition of uh, Adobe Audition and just recorded in there. And um Yeah, just basically started creating. And I just, yeah, just really never stopped. I was completely obsessed. And I was doing this all day long. And I had like little jobs on the side. And of course, I was still going to school. But then I just noticed that this was absolutely my passion. And so I just really started focusing in on this more and more just naturally really. Uh, I ended up doing um, SAE, School of Audio Engineering. I did an audio engineering course there when I was 17, which um, at the time was the one of two options available for doing any type of technical audio education here in Amsterdam. So I ended up doing that and uh, that was a really good um, foundation for me to understand the technical aspect of of audio and I just really started making music and never stopped you know I uh, I did a lot of things for free actually almost everything for free and that's how I got to have a lot of experience and get to know a lot of uh, local artists uh, that I could work with and and just practice basically, and I started getting more and more requests for beats with choruses on them so that uh, people could rap on the verses and stuff like this, so um, I was doing more and more of that, and um, yeah, so in 2010, I um, yeah, um, around 2008, I went to Canada, and then uh, 2010, I ended up winning the Battle of the Beatmakers yeah, beat competition, so yeah, around that time, I was really just more into doing production and I was singing a little bit m- more so production and I was recording people and mixing what I recorded and stuff like this. So, uh, so yeah, I just got started like that. And basically the short version is I got started and I just never stopped. <laughs> 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 just a hobby that kind of went out of hand, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And, um, it's great that, you know, once you found something that you love, that you just kind of stuck with it and didn't look anywhere else because it it can be a hard thing to do with music. Um, obviously, when yeah. when you are doing loads for free and and you kind of have to survive and uh, and that can take you in a bunch of different directions. Yeah, and actually on that, when when you were saying you know you were doing uh, a lot for free for a long time, how did you make that transition into you know, charging for your services? And, um, you know, how did you feel during that time?
1: Yeah. So especially around that time, I'm talking about a time that had no social media, just so you know, like there was no social media yet. We had MySpace mm. and uh, and a, a, a oh. thing called SoundClick <laughs> and that was it basically and some forums and stuff. So, So I got to know people in that way. So it was a very different way. Of, uh, of doing things. And then, of course, once you get to know someone, they also know people who might be upcoming artists or, or producers or something. And there's always somebody out there who want, who would love to record a song, you know. So just I was just doing a lot for free. I, I was working also um, at a youth center teaching uh, uh, vocal classes. So, um, and they also had a recording studio there. So I had access to this, uh, you know, pretty cool recording spot. Um, and sometimes I would do it of course in my bedroom at my mom's house, but that wasn't ideal of course. So, um, I was trying to find like places here and there to, um, to say like, Hey, you know, come over and we'll, we'll record some stuff. And so I was actually, uh, yeah, very fortunate to have a little bit of access here and there to um, to cool spots where you could, you know, just have yeah. something to offer. And, of course, that also makes it so that people take you a little bit more seriously, you know, rather than get them into your bedroom at your mom's house. You can go to an actual studio and they'll see the equipment, they'll see you sitting there and leading the session. So it makes more sense to charge something at least per hour for recording or for, or just a flat fee for a, a song or something. Either I would charge per hour for recording or per mix Uh, recording and mix something like this or or I would ask for something in return like um, if I knew that whoever I was recording um, knew uh, or, or like had skills to to produce or something, I would want like a production in return or something like that. So I would always try to kind of negotiate a little bit. But also just did a lot for free as well, you know. So at some point when you have the skills and you feel comfortable enough with your own skills, you know, like, um, I know what I have to offer. So at some point you're like, you know, maybe I can ask like 15 Bucks an hour, twenty bucks an hour, and you just start building from there.
0: Okay, yeah, no, that's good advice and and uh, and a good recommendation on uh, how people can start. And it sounds like uh, you know even. Before the social media stage, it, it was all kind of about networking in, in some way, shape or form.
1: So, Absolutely. It's so much more important than anything else. It's just the networking. And, you know, this is an all-time cliche. It's like, it's not about who you or uh, what you know, but who you know, rather. So, uh, and it's still true. And it was true back then and still true now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: For sure. For sure. And another thing, uh, before we jumping into our topic, like you mentioned that you were working with, uh, you know, a few rappers and things at the time. And, and this sounds like a while ago, and especially in that world, I suspect it would have been really rare to have, you know, a male rapper and a female producer, uh, working together. Mm-hmm. And how did you navigate that? And were there some challenges that you had to
1: overcome with that? Absolutely, a lot of challenges, especially coming up. Because if, when you're coming up, when anybody is coming up, you just don't really know what you're doing. So, and, and people are gonna, they're gonna know that, you know, there's a little bit of insecurity there. Oh, she must not know what she's doing. So there's a lot of like, um, yeah, a lot of that, a lot of underestimation and a lot of um, being overlooked but i just kind of after you know after some time and navigating this this kind of let's say world i just noticed that whenever i would look for some sort of external thing to to kind of like um, soothe me or my ego it would never work out so I just always try to as much as I can and of course it doesn't always work all of the time but just try to really keep it close to myself and just be like okay I can do this I know that I have these skills and this is what I want to do and if for some reason this collaboration is not working out, then there are other people's I, people I can work with instead. So I would always try to keep it as close to myself and my own heart, and, you know, as, as possible. Because if you start looking outside of yourself for, you know, external validation and trying to get someone else to tell you that whether or not you're good at something, you're never gonna get enough of that anyway. So. Yeah, you won't make it.
0: <laughs> no, definitely. This is not the industry if that's what <laughs> no. if that's what you're yeah. hoping for. <laughs> so, jumping into our topic, we're talking about mixing drums. So, yes. Firstly, when you get a set of stems, is there anything that you do to prepare for the drum mix before you even get into the actual mixing process?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and this is a great question, uh, especially now for modern music because, uh, well, my genre mainly is is hip hop, R and B, pop music. So there's a lot of programmed drums. I rarely get live drums. Actually, let's say never get live drums. So pretty much everything that I do is is um, programmed drums, and a lot of it is layered. So you have like, I don't know, three, four, five kicks layered. You have percussion layered, you have snares layered. So whenever you have things layered on top of each other, first of all, I want to check the phase. I want to see how things are corresponding in phase, whether things are canceling out or not. And especially with kicks, this is huge. And I'm sure that we'll talk about this later on as well, coming back to this topic. but,, uh, so I have to check everything. So I literally just see how the waveforms look, because especially in kicks, it's easy, easy to spot. And also, I just I look for the, yeah, the feel of it. So, if I feel like a kick is layered like five, six times, but there's no groove there, then something's canceling out. So, yeah, so I just put like a a, a phase flip on maybe one or two of them here and there just to see how it um, uh, it corresponds when, uh, when it's uh, flipped. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of the times those are the first things that I do. I also check to see if they are lined up properly and if they're flamming or like sort of kind of phasing or something like this, like flanging or anything like that. Or you feel, you feel there's like a double transient, which is flamming. Like you hear that they're not lined up. I just, I, manually move them so that they're lined up correctly and that the transient is hitting properly and stuff like that. So, um, and I also check for if there's like um, d- drum samples, like maybe there's loops or maybe there are fill samples at the end of a loop or something. I check that there's no um, immediate cutoffs, like maybe there's clicks and stuff like that. So those are some of the preparation things that I, uh, I always look for.
0: Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So you talked about checking phasing. So do you, firstly, do you want to define what that means for anyone who hasn't come across it before?
1: Yeah. So it's a, it's a little bit technical, but extremely important when it comes to mixing. So when you have a, a a waveform, a cycle that goes up and then down and then, you know, back to zero again, if you look at any waveform cycle, if there is something that is doing the exact opposite cycle at the same time. That means that it's canceling out to zero. And anybody who hasn't heard about this, I I recommend that you just go to Google and and just type it in real quick and you can see like images or uh, anything that will help you with the visual aid for this. But um, anything that's not in phase that's like directly canceling out will just disappear. So if you have, say you have two kicks layered and they are doing basically the same cycle, but they are mirrored, then there is nothing left when you play them at the same time. So that's why phasing is extremely important, and not just with um, layered drums, but also with the rest of the instruments and especially the kick and the bass relationship.
0: Yeah, okay, okay. And with that as well, you were saying you check that, and is it just a manual check that you do? You said, uh, you know, with your eyes you can often see it or is there some other technique that you use for that
1: yeah so um first of all i can just i can spot it pretty quickly when i when i zoom in and i look but also uh, like i said i listen for the like uh, how do how to call it like the groove like the the thump especially if you know that things are layered a lot there's a big chance that some some phasing unless this producer knew exactly what they were doing which is not to knock any producers out there, but it's just when you're being creative, that's not the first thing that you're looking for is whether it's in phase or not, you know? So it just, it happens. So yeah, I, I either look, but um, if I if I can't really see it correctly or I just feel like listening, I just check for the the thump of it. And yeah, I know what I'm looking for by now because I've been doing this for so long. I know what I want to hear. And I can also usually hear it in the demo as well. If like the, the kick is layered so much then you know that they want this kick to be big you know that they want this kick to really really just like stand out you know it's not like a little kick for a little bit of a percussion it's the the main thing of the groove so if there's no groove or anything like that then basically I know that something's not completely right
0: yeah. Okay, cool. So that's good. Uh, so you're, you're basically just using your senses really. Um, it sounds like, so just kind of with your sight and with your ears, um, rather than any sort of fancy, uh, tools or, or anything like that. So that's good. And then you were saying, um, with the phase flip, you use something to do that. Is that just a, a plugin that you would, uh, come across anywhere or uh, is there one
1: that you'd recommend? There's a lot of them out there who just have this option. It's like the, if you think of the brand Rode, it's the O with a stripe through it. That's the phase flip. So it's just the O, the o with a stripe through it. That's the button. And so a lot of plugins have this option, especially if it's something with EQ. What I usually do is I, I work in Pro Tools and there's just this stock EQ called the EQ3. Um, you have like the one band, three band or seven band. And they all have this uh, phase flip, so I just get like the, the one band EQ. It's the smallest possible plugin that exists, you know, in, in, the, in the DAW. So I get that and I just phase flip and um, sometimes I'll copy that bypassed on like all kicks and then I'll just one by one turn them on and turn them off and see what happens.
0: Awesome. That's a good
1: technique. Yeah, it works best for me, yeah. It yeah. works quickly also like that, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, No, that's good. And also talking about before you get into the mix, how do you use uh, reference tracks in working out what you need to uh, do with the drums or how, how important is that for you?
1: Yeah, I love using reference tracks. My main reference for any mix that I do is always the demo. Uh, the demo will tell me um, basically what um, the artist and producer want. So that's gonna be my first uh, reference. but also I will usually I'll grab like other music that this artist has done. So uh, maybe I've mixed for them before. I'll uh, grab those as a reference, or maybe they have some stuff online that I can listen to on Tidal or something like that to get a good reference. Or maybe there's something that I can recognize that is in the same ballpark, then I'll grab some of those. But usually my main referencing is the demo of this uh, song and then other stuff that this artist has done. Okay. Okay. Cool.
0: That's good to know. And... Once you are actually starting with the mix process, where does the mixing of the drums fit into the whole workflow of the rest of the mix?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for the stuff that I do, drums are extremely important. They are never secondary. Well, maybe only to the vocal. Like um, the vocal is obviously primary, but they never come last. These drums, (laughs) um, they always need like some kind of... uh, yeah, special treatment. So I, I usually like to get them at least sitting nicely balanced and get them hitting a little bit before I move on to the rest of the instrumental. Um, usually I'll do vocal and drums first and then everything else has to kind of make space for the vocals and the drums. hmm
0: mm-hmm. Okay,
1: cool. So
0: what is your workflow for the drum mix after that? And are there certain steps that you take for every single track that you're mixing?
1: Yeah. So most of the time, a lot of the work is in the editing. If there's if stuff's just not really grooving, right? <laughs> if we if, if we say it like that, you know, I I do a lot of um, manual editing. I like to start with a kick and the snare, get those uh, sitting properly, and then usually when there's like a a, a trap hi hat. Those can be pretty sharp. So um, a lot of the times those can really get a little bit in the way of things, especially the high end in the vocal So and the high end in the snare also, by the way. So if you have like a pretty sharp hitting snare and a pretty sharp hi-hat and then also like the S's and T's in the vocal are already pretty, you know, sharp. I like to balance those out with each other. I like to uh, sidechain uh, the snare, so that every time the hi hat and the snare are layered, the snare kind of pushes the hi hat away a little bit, but only in the uh, high frequencies, so that they are not duplicating, they are not stacking up to each other. So little things like that will uh, will help. So that's a little bit of the stuff that I do. I try to see where is where are things sitting, and what's getting in the way of each other, and um, I, uh, I just get things out of the way before. I uh, start colouring and adding stuff like that. So first I I just want to know that everything has like a good spot for itself. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So when you say giving everything its spot, what are you doing in that process? Is that with an EQ or is it with something else?
1: A lot of it is EQ. Yeah, a lot of it's very simple. It's just um, straight up giving things their own space in the in the frequency spectrum. But there's also coloring in, in the sense of like parallel distortion, saturation like that, uh, stuff like that can really uh, give something a different spot. Like if you have a snare that really lacks a lot of definition in the high end, then of course I want to add that, but if there is no high end in the snare to in the snare sound to begin with, then it's not going to matter whether I boost high end with an EQ because there's nothing to boost. So you know stuff like that. I check what I need and then I just I go from there. There's there's EQing, there's parallel um, processing, and there's also panning of course and um, stuff like um, room reverbs. You know, short reverbs, especially for drums, are are really great to um, get some, um, yeah, to get something to sound a little bit uh, more lively. To put something in a in a space rather than just you know completely dry and upfront. So I just see what it needs. Um, sometimes I'll I'll copy the snare for like a. I don't know, a moment before the chorus hits and I'll put like a huge reverb on it and stuff like that, you know, bring a little life into it.
0: Okay. So it sounds like there are a few different things you do in that process to give everything its spot. So uh, you mentioned a, a few different techniques there and also looking at the pan and is your kind of gain, uh, you know, checking that at the levels of different things in relation to each other, does that come into the process then as well?
1: Uh, usually the the volume I will have done already beforehand. So I like to start out with like a good volume balance and usually the, the tracks that I get are already balanced out to where the producer wants them to sit. Also, we didn't mention this before, but of course, uh, gain staging is the first thing that I do before I start mixing. So everything is down to a level where I have a lot of headroom. Uh, And then it's just uh, going from there. Yeah, okay.
0: And did you want to just quickly define kind of gain staging and uh, the difference between that and volume balancing because people sometimes seem to get that
1: confused? Yeah, so gain staging is literally just the process of giving yourself enough headroom to work with. So if you get uh, a bunch of tracks, for the mix, everything is tracked out, a lot of the time, everything is at a pretty hot level already. So if you have 60 stems for a song uh, and everything is is uh, hitting at, like let's say, minus 2 dB, if you stack that all up and everything is uh, playing at the same time, then you're completely clipping. So the gain staging process is just when you get all the dry tracks. You just start at a, a level, like I I like to aim for minus 18 dB, between minus 16, minus 18 dB, with everything playing together at the same time. And that's my starting point um, so that I have enough headroom to work with. But whatever volume is between those tracks is a different thing at that point.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: That's the relation to each other. So the volume balance is the relation of every track in the song. Uh, to each other, and the gain staging is every uh, track in the song in relation to the master output.
0: Mm. Okay, thank you for making that distinction. That's helpful. Another thing that you mentioned about using, firstly, reverb on drums and how that works well as well, are there certain kind of lengths of reverb that you would recommend for certain types of drums or uh, and some that you wouldn't recommend, and it would just kind of make things muddy? Uh, and also, mm-hmm. do you work with everything being in the same virtual room for your reverb or or would things uh, change?
1: Yeah, so great question. When I mention reverb on drums, I want to be uh, definitely want to be clear about that because there are. <laughs> Uh, some, uh, some things about that, uh, that could make or break your drums. So first of all, I, I want to be clear that usually I don't, I say usually, let's just go with always. <laughs> I put the, uh, the reverb on ascend. So I don't put the reverb as like a dry-wet mix on the drum bus. I don't do it like that because I want to keep my original signal and just add to whatever original signal I have. Mm-hmm. So I use that with a Ascend. And when I talk about reverb on drums, I'm almost always talking about a short, short, short room. So this reverb is usually just going to add a little bit of um, stereo width and depth but you're not going to get a reverb tail that's like just really like verbing all out because that's going to give you a lot of problems. Yeah. So I usually go with a room that's very short and just giving a little bit of space to add uh, something to the dry drum sounds that I have. And especially for, you know, like I mentioned before, I, I mix hip hop, pop, R&B. So if I were to mix a pop song in, I don't know, the 80s or something like that, I would do a very different drum mix than modern music today. So of course it depends on the genre, depends on what you're looking for. The only time that I use like an audible reverb on a drum would probably be like, say I have a rim shot that's just like a, like a really just short round sound That can usually use a nice reverb on it with a reverb tail, an audible reverb tail, but also just only in parallel as a send added to it and not as an insert. Okay.
0: And you would use the same, uh, most of the time, parallel reverb on most of the drum sounds?
1: I would do it on the main drum sounds. So I would see how it sounds on the kick snare and hi-hat and then see whatever else is there maybe there are toms maybe there's a fill like anything else that's not in the full loop the whole time can usually use a little bit more reverb so I'll I'll give them a little bit more with the sends but the kick I I'm I'm careful with you know, I don't always, definitely don't always put a room verb on a kick because it, you know, doesn't always need it and it doesn't always help. So I just try it out. I see, do I like it or not? And um, if I don't, I'll just take it away. Usually on the snare and the hi-hat, it it will sound nice to have like some, uh, some space on there. Yeah. Okay. And um, we... I mean, talking about genres, and I know
0: you kind of uh, focus on a a few different types of genres, but would you say that mixing decisions change depending on which genre that you're mixing for, especially in the drums?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. If I'm mixing like a type of old school rap song, like say it's it's kind of like uh, reminiscent of the 90s, I'm not gonna do a, a, yeah, you know, a mix like I would for a trap song, or you know, like with the auto tune vocals and the super sharp hi hats and stuff. So, so definitely genre is one of the first things that I'll consider before I start mixing. Like, who's listening to this? What's the end goal for this song? You know, who's the um, the audience? So that's gonna definitely, um, yeah, impact my uh, my choices on how I'm gonna make it sound. Okay. Okay. And also looking at different
0: types of uh, audio that you get, and I know you mentioned that you mostly get samples rather than acoustic drums, but if you do, uh, if you are working with both, would you say that the approach would be different depending
1: on which types of samples that you have? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the approach between program drums and live drums, right, is Mm, what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I recently mixed a live set of uh, a great friend of mine. Her name's Romy D, a very, very talented singer, songwriter, producer. And she did a live set. She wanted me to mix it. And this was the first time that I've ever mixed something like that. So one of the first things that I noticed when I was working on this was um, there's a lot of bleed in, you know, the mic's of the kick the the snare the toms the hi-hat so there's a lot of bleed there and then you have the overheads which are recording the um, the overall sound of the kit so and in this case also some of the instruments were bleeding in there as well because they were playing at the same time so i did a lot of manual editing there so first of all i used this great plugin called auto align by sound radix it's um You put it as like a first insert on the track and you can make sure that everything is in phase and and also in in timing with each other. So, you know, every mic has a certain distance to another mic and then things are going to get, you know, a little bit shifty, a little bit phasey. So first of all, I need to make sure that everything's tight like that. And um, so once I made sure of that using this great plugin, I know I'm plugging it like I'm sponsored, I'm not, <laughs> but it's a lifesaver, especially if you do a lot with like live, live recordings, this is going to save your life. So once everything's tightened up, I, um, I went in there and I just did a lot of manual editing. I did a lot of manual stuff. So, you know, of course, there's this great plugin uh, called the uh, Oxford Drum Gate, if I'm correct. It's a drum gate made by uh, Oxford and it's uh, it's fantastic it works really well on specifically on drums because of the transients and everything and it's designed to work with stuff like this that has a lot of bleed so that helped me a lot and I um whenever there was a tom mic of course the toms are only played like every eight bars or something like that so I just cut out a lot of the audio that was not when the drums were playing so I did a lot of manual editing and so that was um, basically what helped because once I got everything out of the way that was not necessary it Mm -hmm. sounded so much better already so you know um, the the approach for a great live drum record uh, um, recording is you know, it starts also with the recording itself. So mm, if you're course. lucky, you have a great recording already, and um, you don't have to do a lot of that manual editing. But um, sometimes you just they are just not in the position to be very meticulous with the recording. So then you just have to do what you can with what you got, and that's um, that's how I approached it. You know, just get everything out of the way that I don't need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's interesting to hear how the process is quite different between uh, between the two uh, working with the samples and 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 live drums. And you spoke about, uh, I guess, some of the plugins that you've used there. And is there an approach that you follow? You know, more often than not, when it comes to what you're using for each of the tracks. For example, you know. Do you have an EQ on most tracks to start with? And uh, is there any sort of chain that you often use Mm -hmm. with your drums?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I usually don't have any chains because most of the time I try to do as little as possible really and just only do what's necessary because the more processing I add, the farther away I am from the original sound, first of all. And also the smaller it it tends to sound. So if I just kind of like, say I do a whole chain of processing, it's just at the end of the chain, my sound has just kind of you know, been squished into a little package. And I don't really like that. I like for drums to be very lively and big and just hard hitting. So if I want a big sound, I, I, I really need to approach it as minimally as possible and be a little bit selective. So on the individual sounds, like the, uh, the kick drum will usually be an SSL channel um, my, uh, my preference is the SSL 4000 by Plugin Alliance. There are multiple devel- developers who have made SSL channel plugins. That's my preference for the kick. And I'll use, um, mostly the filters. So the, um, you know, the, the low cut I'll do at the lowest, which will be, I think like 25 Hertz or something like that, just to get like all the really low, low subs, out because those are just taking up a lot of uh, physical space and aren't very beneficial to the whole sound. So I'll do that. I'll cut everything below like 25, maybe 30 hertz. And I'll use the EQ usually for a kick drum. Uh, One of the first things I'll do is I'll go around, say, between 300 hertz and 500 hertz. And I'll see like what's in there that's making um, that's like making the low mids a little bit muddy and kind of taking away from the impact. So I like to take away usually around 300 hertz, 400 hertz, something like that. You know, obviously, when you take something away, you're obviously going to have more of everything else. So you're already going to have like a more more high end, more low end curve on this kick. Mm -hmm and then um, i'll use a little bit of the compression on the ssl channel not too much and always in parallel there's a little mix knob there so i like to do that and then also so that's usually a kick drum is just the ssl channel eq filters uh, sometimes i'll high cut not always and a little bit of parallel compression. And then I'll have also like a send, that's the DBX-160 compressor. That's really nice on drums, I think in in parallel. So on the send channel, I'll just kind of like squash the, um, the compression a little bit and then just add a little bit of that on the uh, on the channel. So um, that usually is, is really nice altogether. And usually I'll be very close already with that And then on the snare, I'll usually do a little bit of the same, like the SSL channel, a little bit of EQ, some filtering, some parallel compression. Uh, For the snare, I'll low cut more. You know, usually I'll low cut up to, let's say, 150 hertz ballpark, something like that. Uh, Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Depends, of course, on uh, the source material and your end goal, but usually I don't want to have too much below 100 hertz, 150 hertz on the snares Mm -hmm. because it'll take away from the impact of the kick. Sometimes there's a kick underneath the snare, you know, if they have like a four on the floor type of groove, then I'll obviously have to cut more low end on this snare than usual, uh, depending on what it's playing with together and uh, I'll add a little bit of parallel DBX-160 on the snare as well. Uh, so that's uh, just individual processing. Kick and snare will be SSL 4000 4, channel and then um, hi-hat will usually be some saturation. There's a really cool stock plugin in Pro Tools that's called Lo-Fi. I'll just add a little bit of distortion, sometimes uh, saturation if, uh, if it's needed and uh, also the DBX-160 in parallel, usually not as much of it as the kick and the snare. So the hi-hat will be a little bit less parallel uh, compression because I don't want the hi-hat to hit as hard as the kick and the snare, of course, you won't be able to listen to it. So I'll just kind of blend that in by taste and then obviously I'll have some drum bus processing, which will usually be the Shadow Hills Class A compressor I won't do more than one dB gain reduction. It's usually already too much to have one dB gain reduction for my taste because I don't like the sound of compression on drums. I like to do that at the very, very end on the mix bus, you know, to have a little bit of compression there on the whole thing, but not on the drum bus itself because I feel like it takes away from, you know, from the the impact and the groove. And I'll so I'll I'll do the shadow um, Shadow Hills Class A. Mastering compressor, and then I love the Black box plugin, which is um, both of these plugins are based on hardware, by the way, so they're ba- modeled after hardware units, and just have a, and each individually have a really nice, awesome sound to them, like a really cool coloring. And then recently, my friend Decap, very talented producer, um, released his own uh, plugin called Knock which is really, really awesome on the drum bus. And I've been using it, let's say, almost every time on the, on the drum bus. So that's a really cool one. And also one of my favorites for the drum bus is Spiff, S-P-I-F-F, by uh, Oak Sound, the developers of Soothe. So a very, very awesome transient designer that you can use in a very, very, um, you know, when you have a lot of, Options there, and it sounds great. So those are my favorites on the drum bus. Cool. Thank you for talking <laughs> us
0: through uh, that whole process. That was really, really useful. And um, yeah. and going through your process for each of the tracks as well as the drum bus. And uh, just to, I guess, summarize for anyone, uh, the difference there of just kind of all of the audio for each of your separate tracks uh, going. Into the single drum bus and then drum treating bus, yeah. them
1: um, as a whole.
0: Yeah, yeah, as a whole, rather than uh, or, or on top of, I guess, um, the processing that you're doing on each uh, on each separate channel.
1: Right. And then we talked about the the room reverb earlier. So I will use that um, individually on the the stems, on the tracks that I feel like um, need it. Yeah. Because then I can individually choose how much reverb I want for each sound. So if I really want a cohesive room sound, then I'll do it on the drum bus. Usually it'll be individual instead.
0: Okay. Okay. Yep. Thank you. That's good to know as well. And uh, you mentioned that you uh, seem to uh, use the parallel compression a a lot for a lot of the different elements. Do you want to just summarize what that is or how that works for someone that hasn't come across it?
1: Yeah, so, uh, so parallel processing is one of my favorite things to do. And parallel just means that I am adding processing to whatever sound I have. So when you have plugins that you put on a sound, if you have a track and you put a plugin on there and it's uh, it's always going to be, unless you change it, of course, it's always going to be 100% wet. So you are going to be changing the original sound by using this plugin. So if I do an EQ on a track, it's going to be 100% the sound of whatever goes through that EQ. So if I want to add compression, usually I like to add compression in parallel because I don't like the sound of something that's completely compressed. Uh, It's just personal taste. I like to have the original dynamic sound, but then adding a very squashed, uh, compressed copy of it in parallel. So I'm adding something that's completely squashed in, in compression to something that's very dynamic. And the blend of those two sounds is usually what I'm looking for. So that's, I do that a lot. I do the same thing with vocals as well, by the way, with the lead vocals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Thanks for going through that process. That was uh, helpful to kind of, Um, break that down for anyone that hasn't come across it. So we've gone through a lot there uh, on, on drum processing, (laughs) which was, uh, which was awesome. And thank you for that. And keen to hear just before we wrap up on that, a, a little bit about, uh, you know, going back to your career, what has, you know, time that you've been working in music, what would you say has been, the greatest challenge for you and how did you overcome that?
1: The greatest challenge will absolutely be to keep going no matter what. (laughs) So I always say this to anybody that I talk to who's like, oh, I don't know if I can do this anymore. You know, you always come across moments like that. And, you know, it's going to be a couple times in the year where you just hit this sort of, let's call it rock bottom, you know, nothing's working out and, you know, your collaborations are, are, are really awful and nobody seems to understand you, you're probably <laughs> broke, uh, you know, stuff like this. It's gonna happen. Don't be afraid. It's all part of it. And it means that you're on the right track. Because once you get to that point where you just like, you feel like giving up, that means that you're actually in the process of giving this everything you got. So that's actually a beautiful thing, and you should definitely, definitely just try not to uh, give in to that. And, you know, it's okay to feel your feelings. Obviously, you have to have a moment of just feeling that, but don't make any decisions based on that feeling. You know, just allow yourself to feel discouraged, to feel anything that you're going through, and just be like, okay, I'll regroup tomorrow. Today, I'll just feel like absolute crap. And tomorrow I'll see how it feels. And usually the day after you'll feel much better already and you'll have gone through this inner storm, let's say. That's been the biggest challenge is to just never give up basically (laughs) because it happens a lot. (laughs) That is
0: excellent. And thank you for sharing that. I'm sure there's so many people um, that have gone Mm -hmm. through the same thing. Actually, all of
1: them. Everyone that yeah. I've come across <laughs> will will recognize this, you know, and, and it's so tempting to just be like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to do uh, this education and get like, let's say, a real job, you know, but it, you know, just don't don't give into that, at least not immediately, you know, just give it time and you'll come back to it and you'll be fine. <laughs> okay. That's excellent yeah. advice. And,
0: um, and loads of people will benefit from hearing that. So, uh, so that was a, great. So. <laughs> yeah. Very, very useful. So we did have quite a few questions, uh, for your episode and you've actually managed to answer most of them, um, in, in the episode. So, so you've been very efficient. So, um, I will ask maybe a couple. So there was one from Julius official. So Julius asked, and you did touch on this already, but maybe uh, it's worth just uh, specifically looking at it for a minute, which was any tips on mixing your kick drum with your bass?
1: Yes. So first things first, phasing. Check the phasing. See if they are in phase. If they are canceling out, you will never get your groove no matter how loud you put something because they're canceling out to zero. So phase is the first thing. Also, they are usually going to be in the same frequency spectrum, especially in the sub range, the low end range. So they are going to be stacking up. So whatever is happening in the bass will also, be happening in the drum, uh, in the kick drum. So, I like to avoid that by either using sidechaining by this really awesome plugin called Track Spacer. It's very helpful, it's kind of a cheat code. You sidechain, and whichever frequency response is coming in, it will cut those exact frequencies at that time when it's playing. So, it's just basically mirroring the input signal to whatever it's on so I like to have the kick drum push away the bass whenever the kick is playing Uh, in only the low end so you know you can you can set the frequency range and you can also set the attack and release I'll usually uh, set the attack to around 5 milliseconds and the release to maximum 20 usually 15 so very very short transient that is just pushing the bass away so they are not stacking up and duplicating low end. So, okay. if you don't want to sidechain, which some people just have a preference—they don't like to sidechain—then try to just add um, uh, an EQ to each of them. E- e- EQ the kick and the bass, and just try to find a pocket where I'll, I'll take the kick as primary. You know, try to find the pocket where the kick is hitting. Let's say around eighty hertz. The kick will get 80 hertz the bass will need 80 hertz cut from it and uh, so wherever the kick is kind of like sitting in this uh, range the bass will be out of the way there the thing is that with low end especially if you cut out a frequency it's usually going to sound thin so i like to take into consideration that the kick is not going to play the whole time that the bass is playing So if you don't want to sidechain or anything, you can also just manually draw the volume so that the bass is just ducking in volume underneath the kick, wherever the kick is playing. So just take into consideration where are they playing together and uh, how do you want to approach it. But track spacer is the real cheat code for that. So I can definitely recommend that one. Uh, Cheats are always good. We are happy to hear about them. So that's (laughs) that's good. Easy peasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Cool. And we have another question from Alice Bino. So Alice said, with every new version of her mix, uh, she keeps turning down her hi-hats. So do you have any leveling tips for that?
1: First of all, take a lot of breaks because especially the high end and especially a hi-hat is going to really, really be detrimental to the stamina of your hearing so if you're working on a song on a mix all day long the beginning of the day you can have a little bit you have much more space for you know the whole frequency spectrum by the end of the day you're still you're gonna just get like this really kind of um, gradual ear fatigue that's just gonna make it harder and harder for you to be able to stand a lot of high end information. So if I notice that my ears are getting uh, tired, usually if there's a very prominent hi-hat, I'll mute it while I'm working. You know, I'm I'm working on vocal effects, I'm working on the low end, I'm working on uh, the automation, I'm working on everything else without the hi-hat playing. And then once I'm, you know, a little bit happy with everything, that's that's going on, I'll bring back the hi-hat and I'll immediately know where I want it to sit. So if something's bothering you for a long time, just mute it and, you know, come back to it later and take ear breaks. <laughs> if you, if you have time, please take ear breaks. It's very important. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that has all been
0: really excellent advice. So thank you so much, Nina, for sharing, uh, your knowledge with us. And I'm sure there's going to be, my pleasure. uh, yeah, loads that people
1: will get from it. Um, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. I hope that it was uh, it was helpful, and I hope that I didn't confuse people more by <laughs> getting into too much detail. If there's anything that's um, that's not really uh, clear, feel free to also send me a DM on Instagram. Nina mixed it. Um, I'll try to answer everything. as 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 yeah best I can. So (laughs) that's (laughs) a very kind
0: (laughs) offer. So, uh, thank you. And, um, yes, everyone will keep that in mind and I'm sure hit you up if, if they have any really burning questions. So, um, I will let you get back to your day and your mixing and thank you again and have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much. Same to you.